welcome to The Ant Hill, a podcast from The Conversation. I'm Annabelle Bly. And I'm Will DeFratis. In this month's episode, we are off exploring. That's right. Our theme is unexplored places, and we've spoken to academics who have investigated the remotest corners of land, sea and space. Our colleague Paul Keaveney talks to an intrepid geologist who goes where few have gone before. And our producer Gemma Ware looks at the hunt for habitable planets in outer space. But first off, we'll plunge into the ocean. It is often said that the deep sea is the final frontier, a wild region we know less about than the surface of the moon. But is that really true? And what's it actually like among the weird and wonderful creatures that exist thousands of metres below the waves? I spoke to John Copley, a deep sea explorer based at the University of Southampton. I started by asking John what first fascinated him about the bottom of the ocean. I've always been fascinated by stories of exploring the deep sea. I remember when I was a kid, I used to read Willard Price adventure books. Uh, not very politically correct these days, but they, they fascinated me with tales of wildlife in, in exciting places. And it was always the underwater ones that really captivated me. And one in particular had these two lads uh, who are the, the stars of the thing uh, diving in the bathysphere uh, in the Marianas Trench. And uh, that just absolutely hooked me at the age of about nine I think uh, so that's always been at the back of my mind uh, and then in terms of science I when I was an undergraduate I was doing zoology uh, at Sheffield and wandering through the library one day and I saw a volume on the shelves with a picture of this strange red plumed worm on the front and I thought hang on I'm studying zoology I, I can't even tell you what phylum that perhaps belongs to so I was intrigued picked it up and it was a it was a compendium of of research papers from the very latest and it was then quite a new field of research at deep sea hydrothermal vents these undersea hot springs uh, and I was just completely captivated by this uh, and that really from then on that's been one of the main themes of my research so what is it that you find so fascinating about volcanic vents what, what really got me interested in volcanic vents is that they break all the rules. You know, I'd been taught at school that all life depends on the sun and plants grow by photosynthesis and herbivores eat the plants and carnivores eat the, eat the herbivores and so on. Uh, and at deep sea vents, there's this other kind of food chain that starts with chemical energy and the hot fluid gushing out of, of, of the ocean floor. Uh, and that literally blew my mind. It made me think, wow, you know, you can have this alternative food chain there. Maybe you can have it elsewhere. And now, you know, folk at NASA are very interested in looking for these kinds of systems on oceans that might be lurking beneath the icy crust of you know, some of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. So it's expanded our minds to the possibilities uh, of life. Can, can you tell me about your uh, big dive down to five kilometres, how that came about? So in 2013, I had the, the opportunity to work with Japanese colleagues in the Cayman Trough in the Caribbean Sea. Uh, so I actually undertook the first dive by a, a craft carrying people uh, to these hot springs, which are the world's deepest known, five kilometres down on the ocean floor there. So you're, you're in a submarine. How big is it? How much can you see out? Is it, is it very different from being, say, 50 metres below? These deep diving submersibles, or, although they look like little mini submarines, at their heart is a hollow ball because that's a really good shape for resisting pressure evenly across the hull. Uh, so there are, depending on the craft, there are two or three of you crammed into that and it's typically only a couple of metres uh, or less across inside. So it's, it is very cramped, 
if you're going in one of the really deep diving subs, then the hull is made of a very strong metal like titanium. And the portholes that you look out of are very small because they're kind of a, a weak point in the overall structure. Uh, so you can't have very big windows uh, and your face is pressed up against that porthole all the time peering out. And of course, the, the, once you get into the deep ocean proper, the world down there really is quite different to what we're familiar with from scuba diving or, or, or anything like that. So there is no more sunlight below a thousand metres, but there's still light. There are these little flashes and squirts of light uh, from the animals that live down there, which make their own light in this process called bioluminescence. Uh, and that makes you aware of how much life there is around you and that the deep ocean is definitely not uninhabited is this luminescent sort of algae or, or larger creatures so the bioluminescence no there are no algae thriving below a couple of hundred meters deep because the sunlight's too faint um, for them to, to survive through photosynthesis so when you go deeper it's animal life uh, and yeah they're they're making they're making these little light shows and they're doing that to to hunt, uh, to distract predators, to communicate with other members of the same species. So these are things like anglerfish, for instance, where they have the, the ball almost luring o- over their mouth. Is that what I'm thinking of? Yeah. So anglerfish are a nice example. Um, that's, uh, yeah, this, this bioluminescent, this glowing lure looks like a tasty morsel. And then whatever, you know, shrimp like creature might be attracted to that gets ambushed by this extremely toothy mouth kind of hiding yeah. in the darkness below that lure. Uh, and then the other big challenge in the dark depths is finding a mate. Uh, so bumping into a member of the same species of, as you and the opposite sex to reproduce, you know, can be a precarious business. So the anglerfish are, or some of the deep sea anglerfish are a nice example of, of one of the ways that life has come up with a solution to that challenge. And that's that the, the fish that you can see with the lure there uh, in some groups of anglerfish, that's the female. Uh, the males don't have the lure. They're much smaller than the females. And uh, what they do is they, they bump into a female. And when they do, uh, the male fuses his lips to her skin in a kiss that lasts the rest of his life and actually hooks up with her blood supply through through his lips he no longer has to feed at all uh, and it basically becomes a parasite uh, hanging off the female but ready to fertilize her eggs when when she spawns them wow <laughs> that wasn't where i was expecting that to go but excellent very desperate dating measures in the dark yeah. down in the depths do you have a particular favorite organism you know fish or something hanging out by your volcanic vents that you're particularly interested in one of my favourite deep sea animals for weirdness, though, uh, having said, OK, we can look at everyday things and, <laughs> and realise how weird they are. Um, but one of my favourite deep sea animals for weirdness is something called a benthic siphonophore. So it's actually a colony of polyp-like animals. Um, so it's the same type of animal as, as the uh, as, uh, related to the Portuguese man of war. But this is in the deep ocean and near the seabed. And these polyps have different jobs in the colony, if you like, and then then they have different shapes to do those jobs. So it's got this sort of shaggy body that looks like short bits of spaghetti. In fact, sometimes it's called the spaghetti monster. And then it's got incredibly long trailing tentacles that it trawls across the seabed looking for food. And then there's almost a sort of a head-like structure that gives it some buoyancy that it can it can kind of extend up into the water on this on this flexible neck-like structure. And then it's almost like it can ratchet the body up as it's drifting uh, across the seabed to go over bumps and so on. It can kind of put its put its head up into the water and then pull its body up afterwards. Uh, these things can be six feet tall, 
Um, it really looks like some sort of Doctor Who monster. You've written for us before on the common trope that, you know, we know less about the deep sea than the moon or 95% of it is un- unexplored or so on. Yeah. So what's your take on that? The, the big realisation from recent decades of exploring the deep ocean is that it's not a single environment or habitat. You know, we don't generalise about the land <laughs> in the same way that in the past we used to generalise about the deep sea. It's just as rich and varied a landscape. And so in that regard, yes, there's a vast amount left for us to explore. But that then takes us to what do we mean by explore? So, I mean, we do often hear, you know, the oceans are 95% unexplored. What is, we, we have to, if we're going to make that statement, we have to say, what do we mean by explored? Do we mean mapped? Because we have a map of the entire deep ocean floor using some tricks using satellites, but it's just not very detailed, you know, down to a level of about five kilometres. So anything smaller than five kilometres across, like a, a little underwater, you know, hill or whatever, you're not going to see on those satellite based maps. Uh, we can map in more detail using sonar from ships, uh, and the area that we've mapped doing that is about 10 to 15 percent it's about the size of the continent of africa uh, and that'll allow us to see things about 100 meters in size um, but again we're not going to see really small things like the, the, you know the, the the undersea hot springs that i'm interested in are smaller than that so you can't see those in sonar maps from ships uh, to to see things like that you've got to put underwater vehicles close to the seabed where you can get a very detailed view either using sonar or ultimately going down and having a look with cameras or sending people down there to stare out of portholes and the proportion that's been mapped with sonar at to sort of one to two meter level of detail, uh, that is a tiny fraction of one percent. It's one twentieth of one percent. It's an area about the size of the island of Tasmania. So 95 percent unexplored. If we even if we're just thinking about mapping, it doesn't tell the whole story at all. And in fact, if we want detailed picture and if we want to if we're talking about, you know, how much of it have we seen with human eyes, it's even smaller still. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction. If someone were to say, well, you know, this is some of the last untouched places on Earth, maybe we shouldn't go poking around in the remotest depths of the ocean just to see what's there. Can't we leave it genuinely unexplored? Yeah, so our everyday lives are having an impact on the deep ocean, and they actually have been doing so for several centuries without us realising that that was taking place. So unfortunately, when we visit the deep ocean, um, depending on where we are in the world, we quite often find that human rubbish, for example, has reached the deep ocean before we have as explorers. Uh, I've seen litter 5,000 metres deep in the Cayman Trough. Um, you know, I've come across it in the North Atlantic, the Pacific, the Indian Ocean. You know, one of the very few places I haven't seen any litter is the deep Antarctic, I'm pleased to say. That that still really is, is pristine down there. And then there's things like noise as well, which permeates all of the ocean depths, even the bottom of the deepest trenches. We can hear human noise down there. So exploration is also about understanding the impact that we've been having up until now without realising it. And then hopefully understanding how that system works so that we can make responsible choices um, for the future. Brilliant. Thanks, John. That was John Copley from the University of Southampton. Thanks for that, Will. Your chat with John reminds me of a really cool article we had on The Conversation recently involving tardigrades. Water bears. Right, those weirdly cute microscopic eight-legged creatures that some people call water bears. They are almost indestructible and can survive in really harsh conditions. So anywhere from rainforests to high mountains to the bottom of huge ocean trenches like the one John visited. 
Now, according to some research by academics at Oxford, their ability to basically survive an apocalypse is good news. Yeah, if life did evolve on another planet like our own, which was then hit by an asteroid or some other catastrophe, then there's a good chance that something a bit like a sturdy little tardigrade would live to tell the tale. And that brings us on to our next unexplored place, outer space. Our colleague Gemma Ware has the story of one researcher who spends her time looking for habitable planets out there in the universe. It's an age-old question, whether or not we're alone in the universe. Increasingly powerful telescopes are now allowing scientists to peer even further out into space. They are searching for what are called exoplanets, planets orbiting a star in another solar system far from our own, and they're hoping to find just the slightest glimpse of a planet that could support alien life. I called up one of the researchers doing some of this planet hunting. I'm Katja Poppenhagen, and I'm a lecturer in astrophysics at Queen's University, Belfast. I chatted to her about exploring the universe for signs of life and asked her what she's looking for up there in the stars. So what I'm doing is I look at stars out there in the universe where we already know that they have planets orbiting around them. So basically I'm looking at other solar systems in the sky and I try to figure out if those planets in those systems are anything like the planets in our own system or if they are very different. And one of the big questions is, of course, could those planets out there be habitable? So could life as we know it here from Earth, could it develop there or not? And that's what I'm looking at. So th- there's obviously loads of planets out there. That's right. Kind of thousands and thousands of them. So so what exactly are you looking for? What, what might help you decide whether one might be habitable and one might not be? Right. So the, the very basic thing we look at when we look at a planet in another solar system is the baseline temperature of that planet. So that is determined by the star in that system. So if it's a very hot kind of sun, that will make things maybe a bit difficult. It could be also a very small, cold star. And then the other thing that's very important is the distance of the planet to the star. So the closer the planet is to the star, the warmer it will be, the farther it's away, the colder it will be. And we are looking for that sort of Goldilocks zone where we have exactly the right temperature so that water could be liquid on the surface of that planet. This is sort of the baseline concept of habitability, but there are quite a number of other things that can determine if such a planet might be habitable or not, and these more difficult things are the ones that I'm looking at. So you're basically looking for signs that there is water on a planet. How do you find it? this water when it's so far away in another solar system? So that's actually a really tricky thing. So right now what we do with those thousands and thousands of planets is basically we try to calculate if they have the correct temperature to have actually water on on the planet. But uh, it's much harder to actually say if there really is water, if there is just the possibility that there might be water. So what we do to figure out if there's actually water is that we look at these planets when they basically cross over the face of their host star. So basically they block out a little bit of light from the star. And when we look at such events in very fine detail, we look basically at the light coming from that system, split it up into colors. We call that a spectrum. And there are certain colors that can tell us by the way they change over time if there's water in the atmosphere of such an exoplanet or not. And that is a very, very tough job to do. We've only been able to do that for, I would say, tens of exoplanets, but not for all of those thousands that we actually know of. And for a few of those, there's actually evidence from the data that there is water uh, in the atmosphere there. 
Okay, so you're looking for specific colours in the spectrum of light. What kind of colours are you looking for? That depends very much on what you want to be looking at. So for water, we go to the infrared when we want to look at that. But there are also other colours um, that are very important when trying to figure out if something might be habitable or not. So, for example, one thing that I look a lot at is x-ray photons so basically you know you go to the hospital you get an x-ray done but also stars like our own sun emit x-rays these are very important to study because when these x-rays from a star hit the atmosphere of a planet they can heat up the outer layers of the atmosphere and they can actually rip those atmosphere layers away so if you have a planet sitting there and it gets bombarded by all those x-ray photons from the star we might actually have a planet that used to have an atmosphere but by now all the atmosphere is gone and then it wouldn't be habitable anymore. So you're actually looking for historic signs of of what could have been a habitable planet? That's right. I mean, even more are we interested in a planet that still might be habitable. But yes, what we often find is uh, when we look out there that we find a very old system and we try to calculate backwards what the planet might have looked like uh, billions of years ago. So it's kind of sleuth detective work going back in time. That is right. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) And so Where are you looking? There must be so many places that you could look across the universe. Where do you choose to look? So what I'm doing when I'm picking my targets is I want to go for a system that is relatively close to us. So I'm talking maybe 30, 40 light years away. That that means close to somebody like me. And uh, if something like that is close to us, it means that it's relatively bright when I look at it with a telescope. And that means I get good quality data. And so this is what I do. I pick a system that might be interesting because there's a planet at the correct distance to the star that it might be habitable. And if that system is reasonably close to us, I look at it through a space telescope and try to figure out what the x-ray photons from the star look like. So what are you looking at at the moment? Which system are you looking at? So one thing that's very interesting is a recently discovered system. It's called TRAPPIST-1. This is a very small central star, so a star that's much smaller than our own sun, and it has several planets that are orbiting that star. And they are all fairly close to the star, but because the star itself is so small, some of them might be at the correct temperature to theoretically support life. And what I want to do is I want to look at that central star with an X-ray space telescope and figure out if those planets are getting bombarded with X-ray radiation or not. Okay, so you've got some hope that one of these planets might actually be habitable? Possibly, possibly. And this is uh, one of those big questions where I try to figure out if this thing might just be habitable or really is habitable. Might this thing still have an atmosphere or is it all gone now and basically anything that might have been there has died billions of years ago? So I know that NASA, with its Kepler telescope, has been looking in to see how many planets like this might be out there. Right. I understand that there's around 2,300 confirmed mm-hmm. planets and another 1,700 candidate planets. That's right. Um, is that your job lined up for the next you know, couple <laughs> of years? Is, are these the planets that you're going to be studying? Part of them, yes. The NASA mission, the Kepler Space Telescope, has given us so many exoplanets. It's really a fantastic wealth of planets out there. There is one smaller drawback, actually, to that, because what that telescope has been doing for a very long time, it has been staring at one single patch of the sky. So it has been looking at that for about four years and uh, trying to detect all the exoplanets it could find in that patch of the sky. And that means they are not necessarily the exoplanets that are closest to our own solar system, because that thing has been just staring into one direction. So while there are really a huge number of interesting systems out there that Kepler has detected, um, I'm also looking at other telescope missions that try to find new exoplanets that are a little bit closer to us because that makes it much easier for me to study those systems in detail.
you spend your time sifting through all this data that you've been sent from space-based telescopes, but you also spend some time camping out at land-based ones too. Do you ever sit there thinking, as you look up at the stars, that there might be a planet up there with people on it, just like you, doing exactly the same thing? Absolutely. That's that's actually um, a, a very big question that I think about a lot. And that's actually something that one of my PhD students, uh, Robert Wells, is uh, working on right now. Because when you turn the question around, you can also ask yourself, where in the universe can you actually easily detect the Earth and the other systems in our own solar system? So there are certain areas in the Milky Way galaxy where somebody, an observer sitting there, an alien uh, astronomer or so, uh, looking at our sun, where they could detect our planets quite easily. They might be looking for the same type of data that you're looking for, this Absolutely. kind of colour change as the planet passes the sun. That's right. <laughs> um, so what's the chances of you finding something? How close do you think that you are to finding a planet that's actually habitable? I think amongst those planets that we know already that have the right temperature, there might actually already be a few that might be really habitable, that have water on their surface just from, from the numbers and, and the probabilities there. We don't quite know how to pinpoint and say this one is certainly the one where we have oceans and where we have uh, good conditions to uh, develop life. But I think we have a few very good candidates already. What uh, is much harder to answer is, is there a planet out there where there is actually life that has developed and maybe even has formed uh, some kind of civilization. We don't know that. And there's some, some interesting historical research uh, along the lines of why haven't we picked up yet any interesting communication signals from other civilizations if they are really out there. I think that's, that's much harder to answer. I think there are habitable planets out there. I think we already possibly know a few of them. And personally, if I'd have to guess if we'd ever communicate with anybody outside the solar system within my lifetime, I would probably give it a 50-50 chance. 50-50, <laughs> that's, that's not bad. That's not bad. <laughs> what if the scientific community got together and said, this, you know, we're kind of 70% certain, 80% certain that this planet is habitable. Can we get there? I think something that is incredibly hard and will probably not happen anytime soon is actually sending people somewhere because that's really hard. I mean, we haven't e even sent people to other planets in the solar system. But what we maybe can do is actually we can send possibly a little probe to very nearby uh, systems where we have planets to take a closer look and maybe even take a picture of what that planet looks like from space. We could maybe see if there are oceans and continents or if we have a completely water-covered planet, something like that. And there are a few uh, ideas out there in the astronomical community of sending basically tiny cameras with little um, light sails attached to the closest star to our sun. That star is called Proxima Centauri, and it actually does have a planet in the habitable zone and shoot something out there to take um, a picture and send the data back so that we could actually see what the surface of that planet might look like. What I hear from some colleagues who do that kind of stuff is that sending something there would take a few decades. And that's, that's not too bad, actually, when you think about it. It's within one lifetime of a person. That would be a really cool thing to get a picture from a planet in another solar system. If we do find a planet that's habitable, do you think we should go there? Do you think <laughs> this is the right thing? I mean, if this planet has been existing for millennia as well, um, shouldn't we just leave them be? So what I personally think is that if there's not just a habitable but an inhabited planet out there, I think we should definitely try to communicate. I think there's so much that could be gained just by talking to an entirely different civilization that we should actually risk it. So some people would disagree perhaps and say 
that we shouldn't go out there. So, I mean, what, what a couple of people think is that it might be dangerous, right? If there is some civilization out there, should we actually uh, make our presence known and say, hey, here we are, here are our natural resources on our planet and so on. I think that's a valid mindset to have. So I'm, I'm much more optimistic. I think if there's some advanced civilization out there, I think they, same as we are, should probably be driven by the desire to gain knowledge about the universe. Just imagine that, right? You, you have maybe the ability to talk to an entirely different civilization, try to figure out how they do science, what sort of data they can see. Maybe they can see it completely different wavelengths or something. There would be so much we could learn about the universe and about how life works that I think it would be totally worth it. Just think, thousands of years from now, an alien astrophysicist somewhere in the solar system far, far away might be staring over the data from our own sun, asking the very same questions. That was Gemma Ware talking to Katja Poppenhager. We're going to finish this pod a little closer to home, back on the surface of the Earth. Most of our landmass has indeed been explored by humans, even the race to the South Poles won by the Norwegian Rald Amundsen way back in 1911. But there are still plenty of places only a handful of people have gone. And there's still loads to learn about them. Our colleague Paul Keaveney has been talking to a geologist whose research takes her to some of the most far-flung parts of planet Earth, where she is intent on leaving no stone unturned. Here's Paul. The first time the conversation heard from Yanni Najman, it was in an email which began, Good morning from the Antarctic, and ended with the sign-off, Yanni and the Penguins. Yanni is a geologist at Lancaster University. She is trying to understand how the continents collide and how the Earth's mountain belts were formed. Her research has taken her to some of the most remote places on the planet, including the Antarctic, where she is examining the advance and retreat of the Western ice. The work is challenging, and so are the penguins. I was just so excited to be there because it had been my dream to work in the Antarctic. Um, I do remember the first time the helicopter touched down. In fact, it was close enough that um, when the door opened, you could smell penguins really badly. Um, the penguin smell. Oh, they stink like crazy. Yeah. Um, and that was That's my disappointing. <laughs> they look so cute. They are cute. <laughs> but that was my first memory, and the other three people that were with me had been to the Antarctic before, so they were aware of what was about to happen. And I was just like, whoa. Yanni has spent the last 20 years exploring the remotest regions of the Himalayas. But Antarctica was just a little bit different. So I've still got very, very vivid memories of just the helicopter touching down and all the smells and just looking around me and being totally overawed. And then hearing my colleague who'd been there before saying, Yanni, come on, let's start work now. The Himalayas are a totally different environment to work in. But there are still challenges. Sometimes it might take a week to trek 5,000 metres up to the mountain location where Yarni is looking 55 million years back in time. She analyses the minerals in the rocks she finds, to date them and to try and work out how the mountains formed when Asia and India collided. The beauty and the isolation sometimes takes her breath away. But that could also be the altitude. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you go to an area and you pick up rocks and you think, oh, I wonder if anybody's actually been to this place. I mean, they probably have, to be honest. You'll have nomadic people. 
that will have been there and grazing their animals. Up at 5,000 metres, in fact, it's more of an effort than you'd think mm. getting around anyway. Like at lower altitudes, you think, oh, I'll just go over and look at that rock. And But when you're at 5,000 metres, you tend to think, do I really need to look at that rock? <laughs> <laughs> um, and you, you do go over, but it's more of an effort. Yanni does spend some time enjoying the wonder of such extreme and beautiful isolation. I asked her to describe what it's really like. Brilliant. I mean, I love exploring. I just love seeing new places, new cultures, new people, as well as new scenery. And I also find it very peaceful. Um, it kind of makes my mind peaceful when all the other trappings of life are gone. You haven't even got your mobile signal anymore. So you've only got one objective to focus on and you need to do it well and you need to do it safely and you need to get yourself back. And it's also really inspiring. Sometimes it gives you time to come up with new scientific ideas. A lot of the time you are just very tired actually because if you're working all day and bringing the rocks back and you're always trying to get more done than is really possible in the day. But yeah, sometimes when there's just time to think about how fortunate you are actually to get to see these beautiful places. It is hoped that Yanni's research into past ice retreats and advances in Antarctica will help the scientific community gain a better understanding of what could happen in the future. If that whole area were to melt, it could lead to a sea level rise of almost three metres. And if anyone listening is considering following in Yanni's footsteps, then take a tip from her. It's heated socks all the way. My mum did buy me um, battery heated socks and they were, they were the makings of me. I could just <laughs> press them for a few minutes at lunchtime and I knew I'd get my warm toes. I'd recommend them. Paul Keaveny there talking to Lancaster geologist Yanni Najman. There you have it, everyone. Battery-powered socks are a must if you're planning a trip to Antarctica. That's it for this month's episode. Thanks to all the explorers who've spoken to us on the anthill. Our podcast is produced by theconversation.com, where you can find more stories about deep-sea trenches and exoplanets and so on. We are the UK arm of The Conversation. Our colleagues over at The Conversation Australia also run a series of their own podcasts. Do check them out. And if you want to practice your French, The Conversation France have a podcast called L'Arbre et la Pomme or a short one called Conversation Express. Great French world. Thank you, everyone, for listening in. If you've enjoyed the show, tell your friends about us and give us a review on your podcatcher of choice. And a final big thanks, too, for City University London's journalism department for letting us use their studios. Goodbye. Au revoir.